0: Welcome to Opening Doors to Resolution, a mediation podcast with your host Steve Schulhof.
1: Thanks Phil. This is episode 14, The Supreme Episode, and today's guest is Dan Cotter. Dan is an attorney in Chicago at the firm Howard and Howard. He's taught at Marshall Law School in Chicago. He is a podcast co-host of the Podium and Panel with White Sox fan and insomniac Pat Eckler. He is the past president of the Chicago Bar Association and currently is the chair of the Insurance Law Committee. Welcome to the podcast, Dan Cotter.
0: Thank you, Steve, for having me and looking forward to this.
1: All right. Well, and today begins in earnest March Madness. So, Dan, this is probably not going to be put out into the World Wide Web uh, for another week or so. But here we are on Friday morning. The tournament uh, is beginning. And so before we talk about more
0: serious
1: uh, things, tell us, who's come down the Nets?
0: I'm going to go with Gonzaga in the finals. And who else? Maybe Illinois. Uh, All right. Right. like that. It's an alma mater and, you know, close game. And, and hopefully the Illini, you know, bring some justice to the state of Illinois.
1: All right. Well, I, I like the sound of that. I think you have the same final as uh, Obama and Jay Billis. So, I mean, that, uh, you know, that, that's pretty good. And I know I, I said that you are a... Uh, a podcast co-host uh, with Pat Eckler. I've uh, the podium and panel. I'll, I'll admit I haven't listened to every episode, but uh, the ones that I have uh, tuned into, I've I've really enjoyed. And you seem to have a, a particular niche with that podcast. You and Pat talk about um, I think Illinois mostly, but some Indiana appellate court cases. And as part of that, you make predictions uh, there. So so. Before people make bets on uh, the NCAA based on what you're saying right now, how are those predictions uh, uh, with respect to uh, the appellate cases coming?
0: So, yeah, we do a segment each week that's called Predictions Sure to Go Wrong. And so far, we're eight for eight uh, as of uh, today. You know, there's a couple of obvious cases, I think, in those in that mix. Uh, but some some of the cases, I'm sure, that haven't been decided, we've done 15 episodes, I think, and or 16. I, I'm losing track. As you said, it's hard to keep up with them. Uh, Pat is an insomniac and listens to every oral argument in the world, I think. and we, we pick three cases a week, so we've made probably 40 predictions by now. But only eight of the cases have been decided, and we're eight for eight. Uh, but as the segment suggests, predictions sure to go wrong. I think there's two cases that came out yesterday, and then both of them, the, the court's that decided the cases did not answer the questions or did not provide the relief to either party that was requested. So I think on those there are probably no contest or no, you know, no decision. So we're eight Oh and two, I guess. So it sounds like spring
1: training baseball, a lot of ties, right? Okay, well, I also said that you are an author, and so I don't know where you and Pat have the time to do all of this, but uh, you uh, have published uh, the Chief Justices, the seventeen men of the center seat, their courts and their times. Obviously, a book that looks into uh, the Supreme Court and specifically the men who have served as Chief Justices of the Supreme Court. And just by looking at the title, the one thing that really jumps out at me is uh, I think the Supreme Court has been around now for 232 years. And we're talking, there's only been 17 chief justices. And I think that puts history into perspective in terms of, that just seems like a small number to go back and do a history. So it it does make it, I think, a manageable project uh, for
0: you. It does. And, you know, you think about the presidency, there's been 46 presidents. And uh, so... We're on, well, Joe Biden is 46, so there's only been 17 chief justices, as you know. You know, the thing that differentiates the court from uh, Congress or anything else is the lifetime tenure. They serve on good behavior. And so we've had uh, John Marshall serve for more than 30 years. Tanny, who replaced him, was another person that served for a very long time. And so... Yeah, it's only been 17. And what the biggest question I get is from when I talk about the book is uh, why men only. And the, the reality is, is that in the history of the Supreme Court, we've only had five females. They've all been associate justices. So that's the reason that it's the men at the center seat. Right. Well,
1: hopefully, at some point in our nation's future, we can uh, address that. What was it that drew you to not just the Supreme Court. You're obviously a history buff because one of the great aspects of this book is how you put in a historical perspective some of the decisions and some of the justices. But other people have written about the Supreme Court as an institution. I think what makes this book so interesting is your focus on job of chief justice. So tell us a little bit about what makes a chief justice, a good chief justice, a bad chief justice, and what made you interested in focusing on that aspect?
0: Sure, and the the, the biggest thing is that the title of chief justice is only used once in the Constitution, and that's in matters of impeachment of the president. The chief justice shall preside. Uh, The Judiciary Act of 1789 talked about a chief justice, uh, but there's not really a well-defined role of the chief justice. And so beginning of the book, what I talk about is the fact that this position really doesn't have a lot of formal powers, but I compare it to animal farm where all animals or all justices are created equal, but some justices are more equal than others. And what, what makes a, what makes a great chief justice, I think is the uh, politicking uh, of, of that person and their influence and leadership on the court. And when we look throughout the court's history, You know, the people that come to mind is the great chief justices, uh, John Marshall, Earl Warren, uh, Rehnquist to some extent, and Charles Evans Hughes. And what they all had uh, probably was a very divided courts or potentially divided courts. And somehow through their influence and leadership, they were able to lead the courts. Now, what led me to this book is, you know, in law school, I had nobody in my family. Everything was was very foreign to me, you know, the, the case numbers at the top of the pages, any second and all this stuff. And one of the things I, I realized in law school is that we spent a lot of time, we go case by case by case, no matter what the subject is. It could be a Supreme Court of New Jersey. It could be the Supreme Court of the United States. We never focused on the personalities, the time or the context of what was happening in, in the historical picture. And we just go case to case. And so that, that really intrigued me, and uh, like you said, I, I love history. I love especially the founding era, the constitutional founding, and that period of time, but it just fascinated me, and I so I started to explore some of the, the justices and started getting books on them from uh, my in-laws and other people for, for birthdays and holidays, and uh, when I was in law school and then when I graduated law school, I just really started reading them and thought that there's really nothing out there, as you said. There's a lot of things about the the institution of the Supreme Court, but not really the personalities. And so I wanted to dig in and see what it was about various courts that kind of, you know, influenced the history of the Supreme Court. Well, I
1: think you do a great job. And for the record, I enjoyed the book, even if I would have had to have paid for it, Dan. So, uh, you know, I'm not just saying it, uh, you know, because you uh, sent me a copy after I spoke at the uh, CBA. But no, seriously, I do think that there's also a tension between those of us who are interested in history and what's considered to be a true and rigorous analysis of legal precedent. Because I... Always, you know, I was a history major. uh, I'm interested in history. And for me, what really makes history come alive to me is if you take a historical event and, you know, maybe in hindsight, that's the thing about history, certain things seem obvious, and you, you, you look at what was a bad decision, you know, call it, uh, you know, Napoleon and uh, H- Hitler's decision to invade, you know, Russia and the Soviet Union, you know, and you can look back at that and say, well, that, that was dumb. But to me, history is much more interesting when you try to get in the minds of the people who made the decision with the information that they had at that time, looking through the, the prism that they were looking through it as opposed to historically yet i think when we talk about legal precedent we're really not supposed to dig into the why of it so much as to accept and apply the legal principle that 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 evolved so am i making too much in there or is there a little bit of a tension especially with the law and you know, what purpose, I think, a historical analysis of the men who actually wrote
0: it? I, th- I think that's fair. And I think part of that is because we see the ju- judiciary, especially with lifetime tenure, and, and if you look at the founding and the reasons why that is, right, it was supposed to be the one branch of government that was not influenced by personal political views or by personal references. And you know that that there is a tension there the, the other tension that's exists and one of the things that when you read about anybody that talks about as you mentioned history and political biography or biographies of historical figures is you have to sift through a lot of a lot of the writers and what their viewpoint was and what their kind of angle was right and so you know one of the things that's you know, is is being debated now and being talked about now is the name, you know, John Marshall and his positions on slavery and his decisions. But if you look at most of his biographies, they don't talk about the fact that 14 cases or 17 cases involving slavery uh, were before the Supreme Court. And if you look up and do like a Wikipedia search, you don't see that. So there is that tension, right? And it's, it's, uh, it is difficult. And as you say, you know, legal cases, they set forth what the law is, and then we're supposed to apply that. And, and so there is that tension of, does it matter? And and my argument is, is that because these people put on their pants like everybody else, and they do have political views, they're appointed in a political process, it is interesting and important for us to kind of take a look at these actors and analyze them from that prism and kind of, you know, analyze why they may have come to the decision they did or why the court as a whole decided as it did or did not decide something.
1: Well, the structure of the book then goes into uh, having a chapter on each of the uh, 17 uh, chief justices. So I imagine you've already listed some of the more prominent, famous uh, chief justices of the court, but they're, they're frankly... Were other chief justices that I'll acknowledge. Maybe I had heard of them, but I knew, you know, nothing about them. So when you were doing your research for this, uh, who was the justice who maybe once you learned more about him, your opinion of that justice uh, was transformed, both for the positive or negative, you know, the most just by digging into uh, the historical record.
0: I think of the seventeen, and as you know, there's there's some that you know history hasn't really reflected upon, or remembered very well. And uh, my son was one of the editors of the book, and and one of the footnotes I talk about the kind of lag from the 1870s say to the Earl Warren Court. There's a you know it's not a very impressive uh, court, very conservative, but not, not very giving of of rights. But the person probably of a positive. A uh, feature that I, as I explored, would, would probably be uh, Chief Justice Earl Warren, and the reason for that is a couple. One is I talk about it in the book. There was a situation when he was the uh, county attorney in California and engaged in some surveillance and some things that uh, was before wiretapping and things. But it was uh, in retrospect, it was probably illegal obtaining of confessions by some suspects in a, in a matter. The other thing about Earl Warren, a couple of things about Earl Warren is is he was a very, very much an advocate of the internment of the Japanese during World War II. He he signed the executive order, it turned out to be based on false information about the Japanese and where they, uh, where they were residents in this, in California. They they were you know in very uh, poor areas of, of for farming, uh, but then and that's 1942. You jump ahead to. 1954 and he gets to the Supreme Court of the United States and the first oral argument he hears is the rehearing of Brown versus the Board of Education and he worked the next several months to ensure through his politicking and through his political skills, he was a, a Attorney General and Governor of California to, to get a, a unanimous decision of the Supreme Court of the United States. So uh, The other thing about Earl Warren is that there were a lot of signs in the South uh, that talked about impeaching or lynching Earl Warren. And and part of it was Brown versus Board of Education, but the other part was his jurisprudence and the Warren Court's jurisprudence on criminal defendants' rights. And in 1938, when he was running on election night for uh, re-election as Attorney General of California, his dad was bludgeoned to death. It's a case that was never solved. And so if you look at some of that stuff, you kind of, the whole mix of Earl Warren, you kind of look at all that and say, okay, it's it's hard to rectify some of those things, right? Like you would think that somebody who had been a victim personally of violence and criminal behavior might not be as uh, cognizant or recognizing of defendants' rights as, as his court was. So I think he's probably the positive one. You know, the, the one that's, that's really uh, of the list uh, that is probably the negative one or the one that's surprisingly, you know, might not even belong in the list or some argument that he doesn't is John Rutledge. John Rutledge was an associate justice of the Supreme court. He never rode circuit. He said he had gout and other things. He resigned to go to South Carolina and do some South Carolina politics and, and went on that court. And then he was appointed as the chief justice of the Supreme court. And the John Jay, who was his predecessor, one of his predecessors uh, was overseas doing the Jay treaty and Rutledge, on his way to the Capitol, had a, a rally in South Carolina and said it would be better off that George Washington was dead, and and that John Jay had committed a travesty. And the Supreme, uh, the Senate, when they came into a session in December later that year, rejected him. He was the first Supreme Court nominee rejected by the Senate. He went back to South Carolina and and tried to drown himself and was saved by two of his slaves on his plantation. So. He's an interesting character, but but as I note in the book, the thing about John Rutledge that's important is that he was very instrumental in the design and final product of the Constitution.
1: And somebody who really, if you asked most Americans to come up with uh, you know instrumental founding fathers uh, in the early stages of our government, it's probably not somebody you're going uh, to hear. And those are the type of uh, tidbits uh, that you can get in this book. Well, you were talking, though, about negative and you know i have to say that my knee jerk reaction if i'm asked you know name a you know bad Chief Justice of uh, the United States or a bad period for the Supreme Court, usually Roger uh, Taney uh, c- comes to mind as the Chief Justice who oversaw Dred Scott. So, you know, I think Dred Scott is is synonymous for a dark period in, in American history. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Taney? You know, am I wrong to be thinking that? Was there anything that you uncovered, you know, in trying to come up with his background? I mean, one of the things that I think that uh, you have in that chapter with Taney was also from South Carolina. If, uh, if I'm remembering, I correctly. Correct. yeah. And, uh, you had a, a case from earlier before he became on the Supreme court that kind of foreshadowed what the thinking would be, you know, on Dred Scott. So, so was there anything with Taney that should make me feel that he wasn't, uh, you know, towards the bottom of the list of uh, chief justices?
0: No, you're absolutely right. And, and And we do talk in the book about one decision makes a le- legacy, but he he was the attorney general and uh, was very he was a very controversial uh, pick. He was the treasurer and uh, could not be confirmed for a variety of positions that Jackson tried to get him confirmed for and uh, tawny, the the thing about him is is Dred Scott, but as an attorney general, as you mentioned he did in fact write two other opinions, that it should, should have been no surprise, you know. And it, it's it's interesting because Antonin Scalia and uh, Charles Evans Hughes and others have talked about him being, you know, an, actually an excellent jurist. But what he was trying to do with Dred Scott and failed was to put an end to the question of slavery and this whole uh, the compromises and, and things that had happened. But it turned out, as you know, to be a disastrous decision. It really was the final kind of tinder that led to the Civil War and was not a good thing. And so it's fair to, to put that on him. And I, I rank 16. I don't rank Roberts because he's still there. Uh, but I do do indicate that of the chief justices, you know, that that decision and, and some others earn him, you know, the, the worst position of the chief justices that have serves
1: well and for any of my listeners who uh, maybe you remember Dred Scott generically in school you know the the the, the holding really was a, a standing question in terms of whether mr Scott was really a citizen and uh you know one of the things taking a look at your your chapter which goes a little bit more to procedure is it if I recall correctly is that that case um, was argued for three days, and then they wound up for politics, probably waiting to decide it till after the election. And they heard another three days of hearing. So was that was that normal? Talk to us a little bit about you know our our modern notion. You know, there's strict time limitations. So back then, I mean, how many days did you get to argue?
0: <laughs> you know, often oftentimes there was not really limits put on it that's that's a more modern uh institution and it, it started to really happen in the warren court and and burger court in terms of really restricting that and then rehnquist was was a stickler for that as well but back in those days yeah there there are some cases that went on for days and days when you read about like dartmouth back in the early 1800s you know the, these orders would come in and it was almost like uh parliament they would come in and and talk and argue and sometimes there'd be questions and other times they would be in the basement of the senate and just let them go and and so uh, but it was unusual like you said that this case there was a hiatus for the elections which which might tell you something about what people thought might happen with the case and then they came back and had three more days of argument and so very very unusual even at that time i think to bifurcate hearings before and after a trial to kind of let the heat or or let the election speak.
1: Well, and you know, I think history, you, you you mentioned, and I think this is a great point, that if you are trying to look into history, you have to also look into the history of the historical books that you're reading. Because if there's a an angle that somebody is trying to push, and and clearly there are people who look back and try to make modern arguments about about slavery and, and different aspects of our history. And I think it's extremely important to go back and look at the original documents. At the end of the day, history, it's important to learn what other people were saying afterwards, but It's always, I think, the first step for a good historian is to go back to the primary documents. So for purposes of the Civil War, I always tell people, just Google and look at the actual articles of secession. They were legal documents. States were voting on why they were leaving the Union. And it's very hard to conclude that they weren't leaving the Union because they viewed as the white race as superior uh, to the Negro race that, that they slavery was the the real reason, and people who try to say otherwise are different. So one thing, though, that I want to point out, and this is just the type of nuggets that you can get in this book, we were talking about uh, Tawny, and when he uh, was the attorney general. And so this is, uh, I think, one of the opinions that you were alluding to that foreshadowed Uh, Dred Scott, uh, and this is just a quote that you have in the book, where he says, The African race in the United States, even when free, are everywhere a degraded class and exercise no political influence. The privileges they are allowed to enjoy are accorded to them as a matter of kindness and benevolence rather than of right. And so, boy, you know, when I hear people, you know, looking back and saying that they thought he was a good jurist, I think that's pretty difficult when you're taking a full class of people explaining why they're not citizens and also just saying that any rights that they have are really not rights. They're just because we're being very kind to them. So those are the type of uh, actual historical documents that you quote and that you have in your book that I think, uh, you know, make it a must read for people who uh, are interested
0: one thing I think that's that's of, uh, also of interest about the Dred Scott decision is that it's the only time in history that a justice of the Supreme Court of the United States uh, left on principle, and that was Benjamin Robbins Curtis, who was on the Supreme Court at the time. Uh, after this decision came out, he was one of the two dissenters in the case. He actually resigned from the Supreme Court. Which again, you you look at you know current times, you look at some of the dissents over the last. 30 years, Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Justice Roberts, you know, in his eighth, his lone walk uh, last week or, or a couple of weeks ago now. And so it was unusual, but, but that's how much that this case was received, at least by those that disagreed with the opinion itself and the views expressed by the Supreme Court in that 7-2 decision.
1: All right. So if we're talking about famous Supreme Court rulings, you know, obviously we've talked about Dred Scott. I think another one that comes to mind is uh, Roe uh, v. Wade, part of the Warren uh, Burger Court. And, you know, before we talk a little bit about that, I think, you know, to me, one of the more fascinating facts is I think, uh, you know, Dan, you and I are about the same age. And I think, you know, growing up, part of the cultural wars have always been abortion and the reaction to Roe versus Wade and so i in my mind i you know i think i've just assumed that when Roe versus Wade came down half the country was up in arms and i think you mentioned this in the book i think the first associate justice nominated for the court after uh, Roe versus Roe v. Wade, John Paul Stevens in 1975, at his confirmation hearings, was not asked a single question about abortion or Roe versus Wade. That just seems incredible
0: to me. So am I am I remembering that correctly? That's all correct. And the thing about Roe v. Wade, some people attribute it to the Warren Court, but it's the Burger Court, as you mentioned. It was a 7-2 decision, and five of the seven Justices in the majority were Republican appointees. The only two dissenters were William Rehnquist as an associate justice and William Brennan, the Catholic who was appointed by Brennan and, and uh, or by Eisenhower. And three of the individuals, including Chief Justice Berger, were in the majority. Uh, it did not become an issue, a hot button issue until Ronald Reagan put in his 1980 platform for the Republican Party that they would be opposed to abortion. And and so at the time, it was, I think, part of the reasoning, and it's not entirely clear, but I think part of it was that the decision of Roe v. Wade was really a states' rights types of, type of approach that we used to have, you know, kind of that divide in terms of states' rights and leaving the experiment to uh, the states. And I think that's maybe as much as anything was one of the reasons that back in, at least right after the decision was issued, that that more Republicans supported it than Democrats, surprisingly.
1: Well, and you talk about Democrats and Republicans. I think most people look at the court during Earl Warren and and Berger, you know, the the Warren court and the Berger court, and think that they were relatively liberal courts. But as you're pointing out, they were nominated by Republicans. And I, I believe your book... Answers this obscure trivia question. Apparently, the last Chief Justice who was nominated by a Democrat was Fred Vinson. That's correct. And I, I don't think he goes down in, as history as one of the better uh, Chief Justices, does
0: he? He does he not, although he, he had an interesting career. That was a very short tenure, but some of the uh, lead up to Brown versus Board of Education was actually decided during the Vinson Court in terms of. Some of the graduate schools and integrating some of those schools it was kind of a stepping stones that the naacp and thurgood marshall had designed to then say well if, if universities and graduate students uh, separate can't be equal same for grade schools but you're right and you know in the on the berger court berger was nominated by nixon blackman was nominated by nixon powell was uh, nixon the pointy and rehnquist was and What Nixon promised as president, and part of the reason he won uh, the election, was that he promised law and order candidates for the bench. And so, as I mentioned, three of those four law and order uh, justices were in the majority on Roe v. Wade.
1: Well, that's interesting. You know, we're talking about, I think, Fred Vinson is somebody that most people don't remember or have ever heard of. So along those lines, I think you say oliver ellsworth one of our you know going back to the 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 founding fathers and uh early in our institutions uh you call him a forgotten innovator so what type of innovations did he bring to the court
0: he he brought a couple of things one was that before his time you know john marshall is seen as kind of the one voice of the court but he uh, brought some of the unified opinions to the court and uh Again, for, forgotten kind of that that he was in fact responsible for that. So that was one of his biggest innovations, I think. He also was, you know, very involved with the with the founding and a uh, founding father as well, and was very involved in that. But but that that was probably his biggest innovation. Some of the things that John Marshall gets uh, credit for. One of the other things was is that we all know Marbury versus Madison is is law students. But one of the cases that he decided also kind of had that flavor in his short tenure that talked about uh, the fact that the, the court was the uh, final you know decision maker on issues of constitutional interpretation.
1: All right. Well, you know, we're over a half hour into this podcast, and I know some of my listeners might be thinking, you know, Steve's had some different guests. Uh, I've had an environmental expert. I've had a law professor. I've had a lawyer who uh, at night was a comedian. So we've had different folks. The last two episodes, we've had uh, other mediators. So I guess, you know, a question on some people's mind is, you know, what does what Steve is talking uh, with Dan have to do even loosely with mediation? So my loose connection here is Warren Burger. So when I decided to uh, switch cold turkey from uh, litigating to uh, to mediation even though I had represented lots of different clients and hundreds of uh, mediations I needed to you know get trained in mediation so you know chapter one of uh, you know the course book that we had on mediation talked a little bit about mediations history and what a lot of people don't realize, and I think that this is unusual for somebody who was a active, you know, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, the top of our legal system, is that Berger became fairly critical of the system as a whole and gave some pretty influential speeches and wrote some influential articles about how the system was becoming too costly and that. It was inefficient, and there were delays—all things that I think uh, are as true today as they were when he started voicing them. And uh, so, looking back at my, you know, textbook, you know, page, page one talked about, you know, Justice Berger's telling lawyers and admonishing them that you know we've we have served and must continue to see our role as problem solvers, harmonizers and peacemakers, the healers, not the promoters of conflict. And in response to Berger, many states started to consider Alternative uh, dispute resolution procedures, whether it be you know arbitration or mediation. So I admit I wasn't aware of that at the time I was mentally deciding to transition. But one of the reasons that I enjoy mediation and I'm starting to do you know some arbitrations as well you know is to be able to provide more efficient focused and hopefully cost-effective ways to allow the parties to resolve conflict and, and move on in their lives so am I correct you're somebody who's looked at all 17 of these individuals is uh, Berger kind of an outlier there should I be giving him as much credit as I do for promoting ADR?
0: absolutely you should and he he talked about in the ABA journal i think in 1984 on the state of justice and as you know he talked about how costly it is and painful and destructive and inefficient for civilized people and he is is given credit and rightfully so i believe uh, for being a big proponent of adr as we know it today whether it's mediation or arbitration his view was you know he was a he's an interesting person I, i think if he were Nominated today, he'd have no chance of becoming a, a chief justice. He was a night student. He he worked at an insurance company by day. And then he practiced in St. Paul, Minnesota. And I think he brings that kind of Midwest practicality like you, Steve, and myself to, you know, uh, dispute resolution. And, and he was, in fact, very strong in favor of looking at these alternative means of dispute resolution, saying that the conflicting claims in an adversarial process oftentimes the only winner is the lawyers and it doesn't solve the individuals or parties problems and so he very much was was in that light he also is interesting because his tenure as a a chief justice in addition to adr he's primarily known for being a a very administratively efficient and implementing some changes to the courts in terms of its processes and style And so, uh, you know, I think he's all about like the efficiencies of, of the or was about it, he's passed away now, of course, but, but was all about the efficiencies of the legal system and making sure that the clients were the beneficiaries of that system.
1: Well, one of the factors of having this finite list of 17 men is, as you mentioned, it's a lifetime appointment. But Berger also did something unusual. Why did he step down from being Chief Justice of the United States?
0: So he he sent a note to President Ronald Reagan in 1986, said he wanted to meet. Ronald Reagan had been blowing him off because he was fearful that he was coming to the White House to ask for more funding for the court system or for some other implementation of a program. But what it turned out to be was that uh, Warren Berger... Uh, was, was going to the White House and telling President Reagan that he wished to resign so that he could be chair of the Bicentennial Commission. And he did, in fact, resign and and was the head of the Bicentennial Commission to celebrate our founding in, in 1987, the, the 200th anniversary of, of the founding. And so it was a strange, I think people were taken aback at the time. He was not that old and People thought, why would anybody step down from the chief justiceship to be head of the Bicentennial Commission, but alas, he did.
1: Yeah, I mean, that that's one fact that, like, if I were going in to do the book that you went, I, I think I would have been looking at that as closely as possible to try to determine, I mean, really, is that what was going on? There wasn't something, you know, in his personal life? And, and frankly, you know, I think when we talked about this before, you know, we got on, on air a little bit. You know, you can multitask a little bit because Earl Warren obviously had a pretty important commission he looked into, and he didn't step down from being uh, the Chief Justice, right?
0: Yeah, he looked into the uh, murder and assassination of JFK, and right, he did it part time. And so, and I did look into it, but, but again, there's nothing that suggests that anything that uh, Burger was doing was anything other than uh, this this kind of interest in the bicentennial commission and you know it may may have been that he you know may, maybe the job was not that interesting you know he was the book the brethren came out uh, about him and his court and 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 some of the manipulations he he did to to always being the majority to assign opinions but i could not find anything and i i tried digging in and seeing like it, it didn't make any sense that's and somebody at his level would step down to take on what seems like a part-time task, and and he could have been a ceremonial head of that in any event.
1: Now, is he on to something, though? At the end of the day, while I agree with the sentiment that it seems crazy that if I had this lifetime appointment and I was at the pinnacle of the legal profession, I would not step down. And we've seen other justices that, you know, I think um, after uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, died, there were some articles that talked about that, you know, Obama very delicately, I think, uh, you know, had a lunch with her and possibly was suggesting that, Maybe, in light of her age that uh, she should step down, and justices these days tend not to uh, want to do that, and that raises the question about was Berger on to something? Should justices uh, have lifetime uh you know appointments? You've looked at all seventeen of the chief justices uh, and any thoughts on that?
0: You know I do think I, there, there's a lot of discussion right now taking place about the lifetime tenure and court expansion and other things. There was an op-ed in the Washington Post, I think it was earlier this week, that talked about Justice Breyer should step down and raise again, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg thing you talked about, that you know she could have stepped down. My view on that is that I'm not sure that the Senate at that time would have uh, been willing to give President Obama a third uh, pick. And so, you know, kind of watered under the bridge. But it does raise questions. There have been justices in history like uh, uh, William Douglas, who served a very long period of time and and was not mentally competent at the end and finally was convinced to resign. You know, I do think there's there's some questions about that. You know, the problem right now is that you would either have to do it through Constitution or potentially there's a provision of the Judicial Code that talks about senior status, and that's what Justice uh, David... Souter, he resigned, he went on senior status. He's still on senior status. Justice John Paul Stevens was on senior status, which, you know, they would not sit at the Supreme Court anymore. but they can sit on uh, circuit courts, they can still be, you know, recognized as retired, but still a justice. So there's a lot of talk about that. I I do think we need to think about this and visit it. Although I, I guess if you look at the, by tenure list, Uh, Some of the top 10 still remain from the John Marshall and early 1800s. So, you know, the longevity and and the time that people serve is not necessarily a new thing. But, you know, one of the things I think that's also talked about and that I think is a a valid debate to have is that when you look at the last three justices appointed, they're all relatively young. And so there might be something to be said right about. You had an eighteen-year term or something else that you could figure out that it would give presidents less inclination to to disappoint somebody that will be there forever. So, you know, I don't know where that comes out, but I I, I don't think I don't think this Congress is going to do anything about it because it's too narrow of a majority, and I don't know that anybody wants to open that. And of worms.
1: Oh, no, I, I don't think so at all. Well, you, you talked about a related issue with um, whether there should be a term limit for justices. You know, there was some discussion during this election of of packing the court. And why don't you just tell us a little bit, I think, you know, there, there are nine justices of the, the Supreme Court, so we've seen a lot of 5-4 uh, decisions. But it always hasn't been Nine justices. So, uh, you know, obviously that's the magic number now. Is that in the Constitution? Is that a statute? And how's that number changed over the years?
0: So, it's not in the Constitution. The Constitution just says there should be a Supreme Court and such inferior courts as Congress shall decide. The initial Supreme Court was six justices, including the Chief Justice, and that was by the Judiciary Act of 1789 the way that it's been changed over the course of the last 232 years and counting is by Judiciary Act. It's been as big as 10 at one point and as small as, as six. And uh, in 1869, it was set at nine. There were nine circuits at the time. You know, there's arguments that there's now 13 federal circuits total and maybe there should be 13 seats. Uh, so it could be increased or decreased but the last time it was decreased was actually to prevent Andrew Johnson from appointing any justices to the court. And so it was an attempt to constrain him from any appointments. If anyone were to retire during his tenure as president, then they won't be replaced. But again, the, the challenge of, of reducing the size right now, for example, if you wanted to go to the, back to eight or some other number, which has been talked about in addition to court packing is this lifetime tenure? What do you do about that? You'd have to wait until justice is retired. And so that's the dilemma, I think, for anybody that would say, okay, we're going to go back to eight or six or whatever the number is. You'd you'd wait a long time for that number to get to that point. And Breyer's the oldest justice on the court right now, a Democrat. So, you know, this Senate probably doesn't want to do that, right? So, you know, I'm not a fan of expanding the court. I'm not a fan of a lot of these efforts. I think talk about in the book and i've talked about in other writings that harry Reid, i think made a mistake in 2013 when he did the uh nuclear option for lower level judges because it leads to the next step right that's a common exercise when gorsuch was nominated and in, in reducing uh, the filibuster for supreme court justices and now we're where we're at
1: Well, and again, I think that goes back to the theme of uh, your book is we always have to look at everything in the historical context uh, of when the decisions uh, were being made. Well, look, Dan, the podium and panel is your uh, podcast, as we said, uh, with uh, Pat Eckler. I take it people can find that uh, wherever they uh, get their podcasts?
0: It's on all platforms, I think, where people find their podcasts or most of them. And uh, you can also go to Anchor. And find it there or find where it's posted. And if you follow Pat Eckler on LinkedIn, you can also find all the links to Spotify and all the other versions uh, in his daily or (laughs) multiple posts per day where he posts uh, links to all kinds of oral arguments and other cases that he's reviewed
1: yeah, well, when I referred to Pat as an insomniac, it's just really based on the amount of material that he's able to produce in any given day. So uh, he's a good uh, uh, partner to to have on that. You know, have you enjoyed doing the podcasts? Uh, I joked with you a little bit that for me, you know, I I always worked at a law firm, and you know, when I moved here to Texas, now I'm I'm working, you know, out of uh, my house by myself. So I, I joke with my wife. She asked me why do you do a podcast? I tell her, well, you know, it's so I can have an adult conversation with somebody when you're at work. You know, so uh, (laughs) have you enjoyed, uh, uh, has it, you know, what's been kind of uh, the biggest surprise about uh, dipping your toe into the podcast uh, game?
0: You know, I have very much enjoyed it. And as, as you probably know, I don't do tons of litigation, but it's just been interesting to me to find, you know, how the posturing of the lower court decisions make their way to higher appellate courts, and uh, it surprises me as well sometimes uh, just the, the interaction that takes place with the, the panel that, that's hearing the case and some of their questions and some of the pushback. And, you know, I, I think it's been interesting in that uh, respect. It's also been interesting just to find, you know, how how technical each lawyer has to be in the process, right? You, you talk about doing mediation and arbitration, but there's rules along every step of the way for litigants, uh, regardless of forum. And it's just amazing how many traps there are for the unaware or even for the aware, you know, that that things come up and courts say, well, you didn't do this, you didn't preserve the record, you didn't object again, you know, for the hundredth time. So it's it, that's been interesting to me. And then one of one of the interesting aspects as well is just uh, like you said, Pat's a great partner. It's just amazing to me how much information he digests per week. Because as we're getting ready for these cases, you know, for the podcast we do three cases per episode, and I'll look and find some sometimes, and I'll tell him, but you know, he's scoured the uh, dockets for Illinois appellate and in Indiana and Seventh uh, Circuit and the Supreme Court and and really just has already listened to a bunch of the cases by the time he's suggesting what we should focus on. And I just admire that. It's, uh, it's been fun working with Pat and just seeing how, how attuned he is to to the process.
1: Well, be forewarned. I, uh, tagged him on a LinkedIn post about an Indiana Supreme Court insurance coverage matter that uh, he actually acknowledged he had yet to see. So uh, I did that wow. th- this morning. So uh, th- I told him I, I didn't have time to talk about it because I, I, I had to go talk with Cotter. So, uh, you know, there, there, there you have it. Well, look, uh, we've been talking about the chief justices, the 17 men of the center seat, their courts and their times. Where can people get that?
0: You can go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble or, or Book uh, Bookshop, which is a group of independent bookstores. It's on all three of those platforms.
1: All right. Well, look, I think I've probably taken enough of your time. And frankly, I am getting excited to, to see whether your prediction that at least Illinois will get past Drexel in the first round uh, comes true, which I think is starting in about an hour. So in all seriousness, uh, thank you very much, Dan. It was a pleasure talking about your book, your podcast, and you've been a great guest. So it's uh, very much appreciated.
0: Well, thank you. Much appreciated.
1: This closes the door
0: on Opening Doors to Resolution, a mediation podcast. Please join us next time where Steve will discuss with a new guest topics related to mediation, negotiation, and resolution. Thank you for listening.